15, Part 3 of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume 5. By François René de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book 15, Part 3. I have depicted the three days as they unrolled themselves before my eyes. Hence a certain contemporary colour, true at the passing moment, false after the moment has passed, is diffused over my picture. There is no revolution so prodigious but, described from minute to minute, will find itself reduced to the slightest proportions. Events issue from the womb of things, even as men from the womb of their mothers, accompanied by the infirmities of nature. Misery and greatness are twin sisters. They are born together. But where the confinement is a vigorous one, misery at a certain period dies and greatness alone survives. To judge impartially of the truth that is to remain, we must therefore place ourselves at the point of view from which posterity will contemplate the accomplished fact. Getting away from the meannesses of character and action of which I had been a witness, taking only what will remain of the days of July, I said with justice in my speech in the Chamber of Peers, the people having armed themselves with their courage and their intelligence, it was found that those shopkeepers could breathe freely amidst the smoke of gunpowder, and that it required rather more than four soldiers and a corporal to subdue them. A century could not have ripened the destinies of a nation so completely as the three last suns that have shone over France. In fact, the people properly so called were brave and generous on the day of the 28th. The guards had lost more than 300 men killed and wounded, they did ample justice to the poor classes, who alone fought on that day, and among whom were mingled men who were foul-minded, but who were unable to dishonour them. The pupils of the Polytechnic School, who left their school too late on the 28th to take part in the fighting, were placed by the people at their head on the 29th, with admirable simplicity and ingenuousness. Champions who had been absent from the strife sustained by the people came to join their ranks on the 29th, when the greatest danger was past. Others, likewise victors, first joined the conquering side on the 30th and 31st. On the side of the troops, things were very much the same. Only the soldiers and officers were engaged. The staff, which had once deserted Bonaparte at Fontainebleau, kept to the heights of St. Cloud, watching from which side the wind blew the smoke of the powder. They pressed on each other's heels at Charles X's levee. Not a soul was present at his couchet. The moderation of the plebeian classes equalled their courage. Order resulted suddenly from confusion. One must have seen the half-naked workmen posted on sentry at the gate of the public gardens, preventing other ragged workmen from passing, to form an idea of the power of duty which had seized upon the men who remained the masters. They could have paid themselves the price of their blood, and allowed themselves to be tempted by their wretchedness. One did not, as on the 10th of August, 1792, see the Swiss massacred in their flight. All opinions were respected. Never, with a few exceptions, was victory less abused. The victors carried the wounded guards through the crowd, crying, Respect brave men! If a soldier came to die, they said, Peace to the dead! The fifteen years of the Restoration under a constitutional government had given rise among us to that spirit of humanity, lawfulness and justice, which twenty-five years of the revolutionary and warlike spirit had been unable to produce. 
the law of force introduced into our manners seemed to have become the common law. The consequences of the revolution of July will be memorable. This revolution has pronounced a decree against all thrones. Today, kings will be able to reign only by force of arms, a sure means for a moment, but incapable of enduring. The time of successive janissaries is ended. Neither Tacitus nor Thucydides could give us a good description of the events of the three days. It would need Bossuet to explain to us the events in the order of providence. A genius that saw all, but without overstepping the limits, set to its reason and its splendour, like the sun which moves between two dazzling boundaries, and which the Orientals call the slave of God. Let us not seek so near at hand the motive powers of a movement placed so far away. The mediocrity of mankind, mad terrors, inexplicable disagreements, hatreds, ambitions, the presumption of some, the prejudice of others, secret conspiracies, buying and selling, well or ill-advised measures, courage or the absence of courage, all these things are the accidents, not the causes of the event. When people say that they no longer wanted the Bourbons, that these had become hateful because they were supposed to have been forced upon France by the foreigner, this lofty disgust explains nothing satisfactorily. The movement of July has not to do with politics properly so called. It has to do with the social revolution which is never idle. By the concatenation of this general revolution, the 28th of July 1830 is only the inevitable sequel of the 21st of January 1793. The work of our first deliberative assemblies had been suspended. It had not been finished. In the course of twenty years the French had accustomed themselves, like the English under Cromwell, to be governed by other masters than their old sovereigns. The fall of Charles X is the consequence of the decapitation of Louis Sixteenth, even as the dethronement of James II is the consequence of the murder of Charles I. The revolution seemed to die away in the glory of Bonaparte and in the liberties of Louis XVIII, but its germ was not destroyed. Lodged at the bottom of our manners, it developed when the faults of the Restoration gave it fresh heat, and soon it burst forth. The counsels of Providence are revealed in the anti-monarchical changes that are taking place. That superficial mind should see merely a scuffle in the revolution of the three days is quite simple, but reflective men know that an enormous step forward has been taken. The principle of the sovereignty of the people has been substituted for the principle of the royal sovereignty. The hereditary monarchy changed into an elective monarchy. The 21st of January taught that one could dispose of a king's head. The 29th of July has shown that one can dispose of a crown. Now any truth, good or bad, which manifests itself, remains the acquisition of the crowd. A change ceases to be unheard of or extraordinary. It no longer presents itself to the mind or the conscious as impious, when it results from an idea that has become popular. The Franks used to exercise the sovereignty collectively. Next they delegated it to a few chiefs, then those chiefs confided it to one alone. Then this sole chief usurped it for the benefit of his family. Now men are going back from the hereditary royalty to the elective royalty, and from the elective royalty they will glide into the Republic. That is the history of society. These are the stages by which the government comes from the people and returns to it. Let us then not believe that the work of July is a superfetation of a day. Let us not imagine that legitimacy is going to come incontinently to re-establish succession by right of primogeniture. Let us neither try to persuade ourselves that July will suddenly die a natural death. No doubt the Orléans branch will not take root. 
it is not to produce that result that so much blood calamity and genius has been expended during the last half century but july if it do not bring about the final destruction of france with the ruin of all her liberties will bear its natural fruit that fruit is democracy the fruit will perhaps be bitter and blood-red but the monarchy is an outlandish graft which will not take on a republican stem and so let us not confound the improvised king with the revolution from which he sprang by chance the latter such as we see it is acting in contradiction with its principles it seems to have been born without the power to live because it is punished with a throne but let it only drag on a few years this revolution and what will have come and gone will change the data that remain to be known grown-up men die or no longer see things as they used to see them adolescents attain the age of reason new generations recruit corrupt generations the linen soaked in the sores of a hospital when met by a great stream soils only the water that flows below those corruptions downstream and upstream the current keeps or resumes its limpidity july free in its origin produced only a fettered monarchy but the time will come when rid of its crown it will undergo the transformations which are the law of existences then it will live in an atmosphere befitting its nature the errors of the republican party the illusions of the legitimist party are both deplorable and go beyond democracy and royalty the first thinks that violence is the only means of success the second thinks that the past is the only harbour of safety now there is a moral law which rules society a general legitimacy which dominates the particular legitimacy this great law and this great legitimacy are the enjoyment of the natural rights of man ruled by his duties for it is the duty that creates the right and not the right that creates the duty the passions and the vices relegate us to the class of slaves the general legitimacy would have had no obstacle to overcome if it had kept as belonging to the same principle the particular legitimacy for the rest one observation will suffice to make us understand the prodigious and majestic might of the family of our old sovereigns i have already said it and cannot repeat it too often all the royalties will die with the french royalty in fact the monarchical idea is wanting at the very moment when the monarch is wanting we find nothing left around us but the democratic idea my young king will carry away in his arms the monarchy of the world it is a good ending when i was writing all this on what the revolution of eighteen thirty might be in the future i had a difficulty in defending myself against an instinct which spoke to me in contradiction to my argument i took this instinct for the impulse of my dislike of the troubles of eighteen thirty i distrusted myself and perhaps in my too loyal impartiality i exaggerated the future which the three days might bring forth well ten years have passed since the fall of charles the tenth has july sat down we are now at the commencement of december eighteen forty to what a depth has france sunk if i could find any pleasure in the humiliation of a government of french origin i should experience a sort of pride in re-reading in the congress de veron my correspondence with mr canning certainly it differs from that which has just been communicated to the chamber of deputies whose is the fault is it that of the elected prince is it that of the incapacity of his ministers is it that of the nation itself whose character and genius seem to be exhausted our ideas are progressive but do our manners support them it would not be surprising if a people which has existed fourteen centuries and which has ended that long career with an explosion of miracles should have come to an end if you read these memoirs to their conclusion you will see that 
while doing justice to all that has seemed fine to me in the various epochs of our history i am of opinion that in the last result the old society is coming to an end here ends my political career this career ought also to close my memoirs since nothing is left for me but to sum up the experiences of my course three catastrophes have marked the three preceding parts of my life i saw louis the sixteenth die during my career as a traveller and a soldier at the end of my political career bonaparte disappeared charles x in falling closed my political career i have fixed the period of a revolution in literature and in the same way in politics i have formulated the principles of representative government my diplomatic correspondence is worth quite as much i think as my literary compositions it is possible that both are worth nothing at all but it is certain that they are of equal value in france in the tribune of the house of peers and in my writings i exercised so great an influence that i first placed m de villel in office and that later he was forced to retire in the face of my opposition after he had made himself my enemy all this is proved by what you have read the great event of my political career is the spanish war it was for me in this career what the genie du christianisme had been in my literary career my destiny picked me out to entrust me with the mighty venture which under the restoration might have set in regular order the world's progress towards the future it took me out of my dreams and transformed me into a leader of facts it set me down to play at a table at which were seated as my adversaries the two first ministers of the day prince metternich and mr canning i won the game against both of them all the serious minds which the cabinets at that time numbered agreed that they had met a statesman in me bonaparte had foreseen it before them in spite of my books i am entitled therefore without boasting to believe that the politician in me equalled the writer but i attach no value to political renown that is why i have allowed myself to speak of it if at the time of the peninsular enterprise i had not been flung aside by deluded men the course of our destinies would have changed france would have resumed her frontiers the equilibrium of europe would have been re-established the restoration becoming glorious might have lived a long time yet and my diplomatic work would also have marked a stage in our history between my two lives there is only a difference of result my literary career completely accomplished has produced all that it had to produce because it depended on myself alone my political career was suddenly stopped in the midst of its successes because it depended on others nevertheless i admit that my politics were applicable only to the restoration when a transformation takes place in principles societies and men what was good yesterday becomes antiquated and lapsed to-day with regard to spain the relations between the royal families having ceased owing to the abolition of the salic law there is no longer a question of creating impenetrable frontiers beyond the pyrenees we must accept the field of battle which austria and england may one day open up to us there we must take things at the point to which they have come and abandon not without regret a firm but reasonable line of conduct the certain benefits of which were it is true long dated i feel conscious of having served the legitimacy as it should be served i saw the future as clearly as i see it now only i wish to reach it by a less dangerous road so that the legitimacy which was essential to our constitutional instruction might not stumble in a precipitous course to-day my plans are no longer realizable russia is going to turn elsewhere if as things now are i were to enter the peninsula whose spirit has had time to change it would be with other thoughts i should occupy myself only with the alliance of the nations 
suspicious, jealous, passionate, uncertain, and variable though it be, and should not dream of relations between the kings. I should say to France, You have left the beaten track for the path of precipices. Very well, explore its wonders and its perils. Come to us, innovations, enterprises, discoveries. Come and let arms, if necessary, favour you. Where is there anything new in the East? Let us march there. Where can we direct our courage and our intelligence? Let us hasten thither. Let us place ourselves at the head of the great rising of the human race. Let us not allow ourselves to be outstripped. Let the French name go before the others on this crusade, as of old it did to the tomb of Christ. Yes, if I were admitted to my country's councils, I would try to be of use to it in the dangerous principles which it has adopted. To restrain it at present would mean to condemn it to a base death. I should not be satisfied with speeches. Adding works to faith, I should prepare soldiers and millions. I should build ships, like Noe, to make provision for the deluge. And if I were asked why, I should answer, because such is France's good pleasure. My dispatches would warn the cabinets of Europe that nothing shall stir on the globe without our intervention, that if the world's shreds are to be distributed, the lion's share shall fall to us. We should cease humbly to ask our neighbours for leave to exist. The heart of France would beat freely. No hand would dare to lay itself upon that hand to count its throbbings. And since we are seeking new sons, I should dart towards their splendour and no longer await the natural rise of dawn. God grant that these industrial interests, in which we are to find a prosperity of a new kind, may deceive nobody, that they may prove as fruitful, as civilising, as the moral interests whence the old society issued. Time will teach us whether they be not the barren dreams of those sterile intellects which lack the faculty of rising above the material world. Although my part finishes with the legitimacy, all my wishes are for France whatever be the powers which her improvident whim may lead her to obey. As for myself, I ask for nothing more. I would wish only not too long to outlive the ruins which lie crumbling at my feet. But one's ears are like the Alps. Scarce has one surmounted the first, before others rise before one. Alas, those last and higher mountains are uninhabited, arid, and topped with snow. End of Book 15, Part 3